Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And it seems like at least annually I have my chance to talk to one of the biggest game creators in the hobby. Welcome back to the show, Jamie Stegmeyer. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Well, you are back today to talk about a couple of things, but one of the most hotly anticipated things is Pendulum. This is Project Sand or Codename Sand. I guess you, you've you always used codenames for your games. Tell me about how Sand is representative of this new game, Pendulum. Yeah, so here's the, the Pendulum box. This is a game designed by Travis Jones, and Travis created this really, really interesting worker placement system that uses uh, time optimization and involving sand timers. This is where the sand comes in. So it's not a right, desert right. themed game. It's not, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's about sand timers um, where you are putting workers on worker placement action spots uh, at, at a certain time. And then when a timer flips to that area where the workers are, uh, those workers are locked in into those actions, to do those actions, they gather some resources, they do some things, and the workers have to stay there as long as that timer is there, uh, until that timer runs out. You know, for a lot of people, their their first instinct is that as soon as you say sand timer, that that's going to bring in real time, and then when you bring in real time, people are like, well, that takes out all the strategy. So tell me about how you manage to incorporate a, a temporal element into this game, but actually make it a strategy game that Stonemaier is known for. The worry uh, that I have with some real time games is that I get really stressed when I play them. Um, they can be, they can cause stress, but that isn't the case in Pendulum. Uh, we, it's more of a, so it is a simultaneous action game. You are placing workers in, in real time simultaneously with other players, just as I would compare it to seven wonders. You're, you're choosing what you're doing simultaneously with other players in seven wonders. Um, but this timers are long enough in this game that you're, you don't really feel that extreme time pressure. Uh, the timers aren't making you race around and do things. Rather, they are just determining how long those workers are locked in. So it's it's really more time optimization. Is it worth putting my worker on the spot where there's going to be a three minute sand timer, which may not sound long, but when you're when you're making choices in a worker placement game, three minutes is a long time. You can even find yourself sitting there like kind of waiting for the timer to be done. Um, or am I going to put my worker on the 45 second action spot where I know I can move them pretty soon again after they take that action, but they're not locked in. It isn't frantic. It's, it's, it's reminds me a little bit, maybe more of Sulkin, how you, you are kind of just timing things exactly correctly. So you can pick up a worker off this one spot and put it down at this other spot at the right time. Um, but I really did pay, I totally hear that. And I paid attention to a lot during the process of development because I didn't want people to be stressed out as I am when I play some real time <laughs> games. Do you think that that stress is is uh, proportional to, say, the amount of analysis paralysis that someone may have? I mean, if someone is that kind of critical thinker who needs to understand all the ramifications of everything that they're doing, and that's how they enjoy board games, do you think that this game is going to be for them, or is this going to be an automatic turnoff? I have some friends who have played this and some playtesters who noted on their feedback I am nor they said something like I am normally an analysis paralysis player, but this game helped me get over that and just make decisions and make meaningful decisions throughout the process. I'm sure there is a, a small subset of gamers that will be immensely frustrated by this, or they they just they 
won't be able to to deal with it. They they mm-hmm. they need to spend that extra time to focus on it. But I think there will be a bigger subset of people who maybe normally struggle a little bit with analysis paralysis, and are have feel a sense of freedom by the timers in this game, um, where they they know okay, I have three minutes to make the decision. The timer is telling me this. I, that that is my limit. I will make something happen that is meaningful and interesting to me within that time frame. Tell me about the general course of play. Like, if one person is taking significantly longer than other players to make decisions, is that going to inhibit everyone else from being able to make decisions, or can they freely play and optimize their their own placements, and it'll just be to the detriment of the person taking all their time? It's a little bit of both. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to the detriment part in a second, but because it is simultaneous. Uh, the worker placement is simultaneous and worker movement and placement. Um, you are never really impeding other players. There are a few spots that can be blocked, uh, but we use the grande system, grande worker system that, that, that I uh, used in viticulture where there is a, a grande worker essentially that you can place anywhere that you want. So you always have that freedom with the grande worker and you can even get more grande workers in this game to free you to take those actions that maybe have been blocked by other players. But it's all happening at the same time. And so if one player is taking a little extra time, it's really only hurting them. Use the word detriment and probably to it is a little bit to their detriment to do so. But what I've seen in playtesters is that uh, if they if they are finding themselves needing a little extra time, sometimes they'll just place all their workers on the three minute action or the two minute action to kind of give themselves a pause and say, OK, I, I need to collect myself a little bit. I will give myself this extra time. I know it's going to take extra time, but I'll put all my workers on the three minute actions give myself a breather, collect myself, look at what resources I have, evaluate my position. And uh, one thing I actually didn't mention is that the game is broken into rounds. And so these uh, these periods of real-time simultaneous play only last around, I believe it's eight or nine minutes, maybe 10 at most. And so you have this session where it is real-time and simultaneous, and then it stops. And at that point, you can really collect yourself and uh, there's a few things that you do together with other players, but you can you can then look at your strategy for the next round uh, rather than having the whole 90 minutes or 60 to 90 minutes be simultaneous and in real time. So for a lot of real-time games, I'm thinking right now of maybe some of like Kane Clanko's games, like Pandemic <laughs> Rapid Response, time is yeah. a resource, whereas in this game, it sounds more like it's a, a limiter or an obstacle or a consideration that may uh, be affecting how you generate resources or interact with the game. If you take yeah. out the time element, it's a worker placement game where the goal is to what? What am I doing in Pendulum? Yeah, you were trying to, thematically, you were trying to earn the throne of this mythical, mystical uh, fantasy kingdom that we've invented for this game, mm-hmm. um, a world called Dunya. That's the thematic goal. The um, I'll show you one of the player maps here. The... Goal. It's a really cool. Uh, Travis thought of a, pr- a pretty cool. Well, I think this is really neat. Uh, we're, uh, victory point system. It is a bit of a race game, but with victory points kind of at the end. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. So there's a, a player mat here at the beginning of the game on this side of the mat. And each character is double sided with a little bit of difference. But you'll start with tokens at the beginning of these three tracks, which represent different types of resources: military, uh, prestige, and uh, commerce. So, and these tracks are different lengths for each character. And so during the course of the game, when you gain victory points, you're gaining one of three different types of victory points, and you're advancing your token on the track. Once you have all of those tokens and this extra special victory point type in this parchment area, then you will trigger uh, the end of the game. 
And so you're kind of racing to get all three of your tokens to this to this parchment. And even after that, you can continue to gain victory points. There is a, a way that you look at points at the end of the game if multiple players get into this area. But each of the tracks are different. So you can see how that one is a little different than this one. Um, this one has a really long military track, so they need to focus on military early, but their commerce is very strong. They, they have a shorter track for commerce. And so that's that's the the, the core objective of the game, this uh, this kind of race to get different types of victory points on different track lengths. You know, this is the first time where you've really dived into high fantasy as a, a theme, a genre here. And yeah. was that something that came naturally to the game? Was it something that came along with Travis's original pitch to you? Like, tell me about the development of this world. I love escapism in games, I, and I love world building. Um, and so originally, the original theme was, uh, I think the game was called Heir to the Throne, Heir to the Empire. It was based in the Roman Empire. And I asked Travis, uh, without taking anything away from the game, if he would be open to a fantasy theme. Like you said, we haven't done that yet. And he was totally open to it. And so I approached the artist that I was excited to work with, a guy named Robert Leask. And uh, I asked him, basically, Robert, uh, if you're interested in this game, could you spend a month? Uh, could we basically just pay you for a month of world building? Just spend right. a few weeks building a world, and we'll put the game in that world. And Robert had a lot of fun doing that. Travis came in and gave him some ideas and worked on some of the different characters. And so, yeah, we, we built a fantasy world for it. And there are some recognizable characters. You saw a dragon in there. There's a minotaur. I see a minotaur on the wall behind you there. Hey. Our minotaur is a little bit, a little bit different. Okay. You know, you're dipping your toes into this high fantasiness. Like you said, I have I have a minotaur behind me, Herlone Minotaur from Magic. Uh, that's uh, in order to honor Anson Maddox, a fellow Alaskan, uh, one of the original artists from Magic. Uh, I, man, I, I love his stuff. But... Yeah, You know, like, are we going to see kind of a twist on the classic high fantasy? You know, I'm thinking now uh, Jaws of the Lion just came out, the new Gloomhaven yeah. game. And I think of Isaac Childress really making a big stamp on the world of fantasy gaming in part of having a really cool game, but also in trying to subvert some of the expectations for what is a, a classic fantasy setting. And this looks a little bit more on par with what someone might expect out of classic Dungeons and Dragons. Is that accurate? Well, we really did try to incorporate time, the theme of time into the world and into the theme of the game. So I think that's our twist to it. You're right. There is the, there are some very familiar elements here. And Isaac, I think, did such a wonderful job with the world building in Gloomhaven and Frosthaven, uh, taking those things that are a little familiar, but creating his own races and peoples. And yeah, it's definitely not at that level. Um, but it is uh, there, there's there's story in the rules about what the what the world is about. And, and it uses that time theme to differentiate itself a little bit while being a little familiar at the same time. Well, tell me about the origins of this game in the first place. I mean, so what yeah. is the interaction where Travis approaches you and is like, yo, Stonemeyer interested in a game with real time elements? Like, were you immediately <laughs> intrigued or you were like, oh boy, okay, I'm going to sit down and look at this uh, to be courteous, but then move along? Like, how did this project come about? So we, we host something called the Stonemeyer Games Design Day every year. I think we've done it for around six six or seven years at this point. And it, the, the idea behind the Design Day is that we... Uh, it's it's a, it basically just a one-day event where a bunch of designers from around the country, a lot in St. Louis, but from, some of them come from around the country, gather together at uh, Pieces Game Cafe in St. Louis. And uh, it's kind of like an unpub event. They bring their play, their prototypes to play. 
people show up to play test the games. And we also play some published games to learn from them as well. And we've mainly just done it because we thought it would be fun to do this. But one of our little reasons for doing it is that we kind of hoped that we would discover a game there that we wanted to publish. And so we've been scouting at this event for years for a game that we wanted to publish. And a couple of years ago, Travis brought this game to Design Day and uh, people played it, people had a good time with it. I looked at it a little bit, um, but uh, not a lot because it was a real-time game. I, I must admit that I dismissed it a little bit as a real-time game, both from my own uh, experiences with real-time games and from what I understand other gamers' perceptions of a real-time <laughs> yeah. game to be. But then the ratings came back for the game and it was by far the highest rated game in the history of Design Day. It earned a 9.3 rating on the standard 10-point scale that, that Board Game Geek uses. Uh, and that's kind of like a fun thing we do at Design Day. It doesn't really mean anything, but we do ask people to rate the game just so maybe if we miss something, we can go back and say, oh, what, what's up with this game? And that happened here. Uh, I, I missed it. And uh, unfortunately, the people playtesting it that day didn't miss it. And so that's what brought it to my attention. And I reached out to Travis afterward and said, Let's let's take a closer look at this. I need to take a closer look at this and, and actually play it. And I, I found that I really enjoyed it. Aside from the Roman theme, switching to the fantasy theme, how has it evolved since the development? Yeah, there are a few key changes. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the core systems remain the same. Um, there was one thing. To, so now, like when you place a worker on the board, here's the board right here. Like you, you place a worker when the timer isn't there, and then once the timer. Go, is flipped over to this spot, that's when it's locked in and you actually pay the cost and use the action. You move the worker down here to show that you've used it. Um, in the original iteration, it was it was almost the opposite of that. It used the same system. I think when you place the worker, that's when you paid and what maybe when the timer wasn't there. It's been so long, I don't remember exactly what the difference was there. A lot of it is also uh, the user interface. For example, on the player mats, there's an engine building aspect in that you are acquiring these square cards that represent provinces in the kingdom. And when you acquire them through military, you slide the cards into one of these four slots and they improve your engine for that category of, of thing. Um, and originally, this was a separate mat that you were using. So every, every player had this mat they were dealing with and this other mat. And what we really found throughout the playtest process is that in a simultaneous action game like this, where real time is used, you gotta you have to condense everything and make everything as perfectly clear as possible, or players will miss things. And so, by having this, like as an example of having two separate things for players to look at while they're also trying to pay attention to the time on the board, that was too much. We needed to condense that a little bit. So, a lot of changes like that just to make it more user friendly. So as you're getting ready now, as we're recording this to to announce this game to the world and to tell people all about it, are you more nervous than you typically are for a game? Because just like your initial reaction that you had to it when it was presented at the Stonemeyer Design Day, you know, you were like, Ugh, a real-time game? I mean, sure, it might be good for a real-time game, but, you know, we're looking at real board games here. And, <laughs> and are, are you expecting that reaction? And what are you hoping to do to mitigate some of that reaction where someone just hears real time and writes it off immediately? I, I am fully expecting there will be some people that do that. And, and there are a lot of games in the world. There are plenty of games for people to choose from. So it's okay if someone hears real time or hears, <laughs> hears sand timers and they're like, I'm not interested. And uh, my only hope is that someday that they will have a friend or they'll be at a convention. They can, they can try it to see if it does open up their eyes a little bit to what a real time game can be. Um, 
in the same way that someone who says, I don't ever want to try a legacy game, every now and then they actually do finally try a legacy game. They're like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Um, I think there will be some people that say that. Uh, and I am, uh, I am certainly nervous about that, how big the, uh, that group of people will be. But similar to Wingspan, uh, I was worried about Wingspan for a thematic reason, somewhat uh, different but, but thematic reason. Um, I think if people actually do give it a try or take the time to watch a review about it, um, they will see that the impact of time is a lot more similar to a simultaneous action game than a real-time game, and that the time system is used in a, in a pretty interesting, unique way. But, uh, but I am nervous. I'm always nervous about a new release. If, if <laughs> I, I never know how many people will be excited about it or not. So we'll, we'll see how it turns out in a few weeks when we do the pre-order. Well, speaking of the pre-order, I mean, your, your last monumental release was, of course, Tapestry. And that was probably the biggest pre-release marketing campaign that I, I've seen outside of Kickstarter. I mean, Kickstarter has some ridiculous stuff going on, but you know, that, that was just orchestrated in such a, a brilliant way with all these, uh, these steps of release of information and going on podcasts such as mine. And, you know, there, there was yeah. so much information out there and it really built up the game and the game itself was Fairly well received. I think it was uh, it was polarizing. The people who loved it yes. absolutely loved it, and then there were also a lot of people who were very unhappy with the game. <laughs> I think because they they went in expecting something different than what they got, and then there was also, of course, some balance issues that were addressed uh, later on. Did you learn anything from the the tapestry release, and does that? affect how you are planning on presenting this game and rolling out the the pre-release cycle are you just planning on full steam ahead do the, what's worked in the past i mean obviously tapestry sold so one thing i try to be really careful about um when i talk about a game um is i think we've probably even talked about hype before you and i that, yeah. that term hype. Yeah. um and so what that means to me as a publisher is that i try to be really careful and I probably messed this up even in our chat today, but I've tried to be really careful about uh, talking about using adjectives to describe a game. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not my place to decide if this game is beautiful or not, or if this game is fun or not, or I, I'm not, I don't want to tell people this is the, the, the best game or the most fun game or the most beautiful game. That's for, for you to decide. Um, I try to do it, and this is what I tried to do with Tapestry. I tried to tell people what it was and why we made this, the decisions we did that go into it. Uh, that that made Tapestry what it is. And so that's my job. I see my job as uh, as a presenter. I'm presenting information about what the game actually is in a way that is hopefully exciting for people, the, the way I unravel that information. And so in the end, yeah, I'm going to approach tap, uh, Pendulum in the same way that I approach Tapestry. I'm going to unveil what the game is and what went into turning the game into what, what you see on the table today. Um, and people can judge for themselves whether they play it or based on the, the reviews that are going to come out, which will be actually a little different than Tapestry. That'll be the one difference. I, I waited. I had the reviewer embargo for Tapestry right on the day that the game, the pre-order started. Um, and I've moved away from that. So that'll it, that'll all happen a week early. So reviewers will start to talk about it about a, a week early. So people can have plenty of time to watch over those reviews, decide if the game is, is for them or not, bef well before they can, can pre-order it from anybody. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And that gives people information and they can, you know, make decisions based off of that. And I, I think part of it may also be 
expectations. I mean, the the yeah. the pre-release campaign, at least, you know, like I mentioned, it it was big. It felt monumental. This is the next Stonemaier game, and the the video released looked uh, so beautiful. And I think a lot of people decided for themselves that this was meant to be like a a paradigm shift in board games, uh, and maybe having too high of expectations and then finding that it's a civilization game where you're playing these civilizations, uh, that it, it wasn't uh, living up to those lofty of expectations. Maybe that's uh, part of the the reaction to it. Now, yeah. as we're speaking about getting ready for release and everything, COVID is making all sorts of uh, important impacts on the world, really, uh, as a whole, not just uh, the release of board games. But how is yeah. COVID affecting Stonemaier games? I know that we have a lot of information about how it's affecting Kickstarter releases and you know, people are changing when they're putting Kickstarters up, they're modifying their dates for delivery because of manufacturing concerns, that kind of stuff. But in a yeah. practical sense, how is quarantine and just the the general miasma in the air affecting Stonemeyer and what you guys do? There, there are many ways where it... Um... It maybe it would have impacted, it has impacted other publishers, like a, a publishers that are heavily dependent on conventions for marketing. Um, that really hasn't ever been our strategy. So in a year when all the conventions are canceled, yeah, we probably could have sold a few more games, brought a few more people into the hobby that way. Uh, and I hope that comes back. I hope conventions come back strong next year. But it hasn't really impacted us. I work from home. Um, so I, I've worked from home for years. And so working from home during this time hasn't really been all that different from us. Uh, there was a short period where our web store orders were much higher than usual because retailers were figuring out the whole curbside pickup system. But I think they figured it out now, which I think is great. I, I think uh, a number of retailers have, have found ways to continue to serve their customers, and I'm, I'm happy to sell games to them through distributors. So I think in a lot of ways, not a lot has changed. The big variable for me is, uh, is the holiday season, uh, the winter holiday season that will come up later this year. I am worried about the the long-term uh, economic impact that the pandemic will have on people. For the first few months, people are at home a lot. They they want things to do at home. And so board games, I think a lot of people turn to board games. But in the long run, if we still have 20, 25% unemployment, people aren't going to be buying a lot of non-necessities during the holiday season, in my, in my opinion. Maybe it'll still happen, but I'm, I'm concerned about it. So our holiday print run, which we initiated a few weeks ago, uh, is a lot smaller than it would normally be because I don't want to have 50,000 games sitting in a warehouse uh, if, if the economy really, really does poorly around that time. What do you think? Do you have any theories about that? It's just it's a big variable to me right now. I only have a window into very small elements of the whole production and then ultimate release cycle of board games. And right now, if anything, I think the the biggest impact for a lot of people um, is not just the economic impact, which is there, but um, I, I think, as I said earlier, there's a miasma in there. there. There's a sense of futility. There's a sense of darkness. Mm -hmm. I mean, strife in this country in particular and all over the world, really. And there's a lot of important things being done uh, in relation to that. 
but I think that also makes it really hard for a lot of people to get excited about the next board game, the next, uh, I guess, frivolity, the, the thing that's going to be a little entertaining nugget for you to distract yourself from everything going on. I mean, that that is important. Entertainment and, and having that sort of social interaction with people and obviously board games are selling. I mentioned Jaws of the Lion earlier. Uh, Frosthaven was the biggest Kickstarter ever. So people are obviously buying these things. But I know that there are at least people in my board game group that either through feeling uh, kind of down due to quarantine or due to social strife and injustice in the world, uh, they're feeling like, man, you know, I don't even really have the the emotional fortitude to sit down and have fun playing a board game right now. Maybe that's the the social worker in me, uh, but I, I don't know. I I think that's going to be the the biggest factor in what this country looks like in six months from now when we're looking at the holidays. Um, is how ready people are going to be to fork down a bunch of money on you know entertainment. And distraction. Yeah, i I think I think you, you're onto something there. Uh, I for me for me I have found, I I still love the escapism of board games and I love the the strategy and whatnot. But there certainly have been times in the last few months where I've not have felt that despair, and I I I wonder how widespread that will be and how how long we'll see that. Yeah, and I've thought about it in my own work, too. I mean, I, I do this uh, podcast, and I have the video channel, and I'm putting out reviews, and I think to myself, like, oh, man, should I be doing videos that are specifically related to some of the things in the world that I have a platform to talk about? And to a degree, I've utilized this in the past to talk about um, social issues and political issues uh, that... I, I think are worth acknowledging at, at the very least. But at the same time, I also feel like some people need <laughs> the distraction in order to not yeah. fully fall into despair. And maybe that's just me justifying how I keep to my hobby and keep playing games and keep putting up videos and everything. But, you know, people are still watching them and I'm sure people are going to keep on buying board games. Um, yeah. Which, you know, maybe we, we should get back to actually talking about the, the board games themselves. Tell me about the the solo implementation, because up until this point, and yeah. I, I think you've only had one game where you don't have a solo uh, element to it, which is Between Two Castles, right? And that's coming. Yeah, right behind you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Is... Did you crack the nut on how to have real-time elements in a solo game? Well, I, I didn't. Yes, uh, the, the Automa factory. Yeah, yeah. Morton and and his uh, his Automa team they they do have created it. I, I don't even understand. I've decided that that uh, I, I don't even try to understand the complex systems that they use. The complex <laughs> isn't the right word. They they use systems that I think uh, solo gamers can can embrace and can enjoy. Um, but I'm not much of a solo gamer, so. Uh, yeah, there is an Altama system in it. There's a full deck of cards. There's this map that is solely for the Altama system. Um, I think the cards are the main other component. Yeah, there's a there's a deck of Altama cards right here. Uh, pretty big stack of them. Uh, so yeah, it is fully playable um, in real time against no one. 
Well, that, that's at least a relief for all the people out there who are are quarantined and presumably yeah. might still be quarantined when it comes to September. You mentioned that you're not much of a solo yeah. gamer yourself, yet some of your games, Stonemeyer's games, are the most celebrated solo games out there. At least among, if you're going to list, say, a top 30 solo games, I, I venture to say that there's going to be a couple of yours in that list for a lot of people. Yeah. Have you changed some of your feelings towards solo games throughout the process of working with Morton and his team? You know, like, were you originally someone who was like, dude, I don't ever want to play a solo game. Whereas now you might be like, eh, I'd consider it. Um, as a gamer, as a gamer, my preferences have not changed as a publisher. Uh, as soon as we published Tuscany and I saw how many people really enjoyed the solo mode in Viticulture Tuscany, I was kind of all in from then on. I, mm -hmm. I trusted that Morton was doing a great job based on how people were receiving it. And uh, I, yeah, I, I was excited from then on to put it in any of our games where it's possible. You mentioned Between Two Castles. That was the one that he, he one nut that he couldn't quite crack, but he has figured it out now. So we are doing an expansion for that that will have solo in it. Um, and I'd prefer to never again publish a game without a solo mode included in the box. And not just a... A pretty robust, so I, you know, the Automa system. It's a pretty robust system that makes you feel like you're playing against an intelligent opponent without having to deal with all the maintenance of actually running another character, another player. So I trust the system. I know that I think I trust that Morton's doing a great job with it, and I'm happy to put it in, in any of our games as we move forward. Yeah. One thing that I, I've thought about in relation to my own life, and I'm wondering that this may be something that has or maybe hasn't impacted you. When I first started talking with you for, you know, this podcast back in the day, you were a single dude. You had your board gaming group. Of course, you had your company. Um, and now you're in a committed relationship. And if your partner is someone that you play games with, I am not sure if uh, she is or she is not. Has yeah. that impacted how you feel about, like, making sure that a game is not just good at two players but it has to be great at two players i know that as my wife and i became more focused on just her and i being the the core of our game group um particularly after our son was born it became way more important to me that a game was good at two players yeah a couple different thoughts there oh uh, one is i would say so yeah i i live with with my girlfriend now she is a, a great gamer um uh, she, she was a gamer well before she met me um, she normally beats me at games. I'm not necessarily there to compete, but that, that is just to show that she is, she is very good. She's a very uh, talented gamer. Um, but well before that, a lot of the original playtesting for any of our games was just two-player. It was me and Alan, my co-founder. And so two-player was always the focus and always the easiest thing to playtest. Um, and so that, that was always kind of there. But what I found, uh, especially with the combination of living with Megan, being in a committed relationship and uh, COVID, is that two-player games are my main outlet. They're really my only outlet for playing on a tabletop. And so we've uh, it's been a lot, of, a lot of fun to navigate that, to find games uh, to really – I've opened myself up to a lot of games that, are, that only play with two players because normally in my game group of you know, 10 to 12 people, those wouldn't really hit the table. But now I, I love if I can spend 20 bucks, $15 on a two-player only game because I know it'll get to, get to the table quite a lot. 
And even within that category, it's been fun to figure out which games we both enjoy. Um, because I, I want, and it's been most important for me that, that she has a good time playing it, but also in the, in the end, I want to enjoy it too. So there, we actually, have you played a game called Shards of Infinity? I haven't. Have you I heard haven't. of that one? It's a, it's a two-player deck building game. Um, and we played it competitively at first. And it was fine. I, I had fun with it, but it w- really wasn't for Megan. And so we bought the cooperative module and brought that in. And we both had a blast. And that really elevated how I felt about the game because I was, I was having fun then. And Megan was, I was having fun because Megan was having a great time too. So it's been interesting just to navigate that process. And I'm sure it will bleed over into our games a little bit too. Speaking of which, when are we going to get the, the great Stonemeyer cooperative <laughs> game? It... it uh, it's a big game. I know we've talked about it in this past. I probably in every one of our chats I've mentioned it. Um, it. I am hoping it'll be a late 2021 release. I think realistically 2022, just because it's such a big world. But uh, but I am actively working on it every day at this point. There have been periods where I've gone weeks without really sitting down to work on it because I, I like to focus on it for a few hours at a time. Um, but I am I'm actively spending a few hours on it every day at this point. This is going to be your winds of winter moment. You're just like George R. R. Martin <laughs> yeah. taking. Oh, it's it's just around the corner. If I if I don't have it done by this convention, then you know, lock me away and I'll have it done. Yeah, great. That you've said that six <laughs> times over the past ten years. Great. Well, I, I'm hoping that by late 2021, we're able to check this out. But that is going to kind of wrap up the conversation about Pendulum here. And for all of you in the audience who are interested in Stonemaier Games, stay tuned to the channel because Jamie and I are going to secretly, well, in a temporal sort of way, swing the pendulum over to talking about the <laughs> new Tapestry expansion. And we'll have that up at a later date when we're able to share that. So thank you all for watching. And thank you, Jamie, for talking to me about Pendulum. And let's switch on over to Tapestry. Awesome. If you enjoyed this video, we have all kinds of other reviews, interviews, and recommendations via writing, podcasts, and video here on our channel and website CardboardHerald.com. Our content is audience supported, so if you want to show your support, please visit our Patreon. Thank you so much for watching. This has been the Cardboard Herald.